You are listening to the Motherhood Unstressed Podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am always glad that you're here. And if this is the first time that you've ever tuned in, welcome. I'm so glad that you found the show. And this is a good episode to dive into. I'm speaking with best-selling author, Laura Love Harden, and we're talking about her riveting new memoir, The Many Lives of Mama Love, a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing. Now, this is a roller coaster of a ride. It is definitely a story of resilience and redemption. And aside from being a very entertaining story, and aside from being a very entertaining storyteller, there are so many nuggets of wisdom and life lessons embedded in the page and embedded in this conversation. So, of course, I had an amazing time speaking with her and and gleaning her wisdom from her experiences. And I know you will too. At the end of the day, like every episode, I hope that it inspires you, entertains you, and leads you to live your best life. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Laura Love Harden. If you do, please share it with a friend. Tag us on social media at Motherhood Unstressed uh, with anything that you've learned from this episode or that you liked from this episode. And of course, leave us a review if you haven't already. Please enjoy this episode with Laura Love Harden. Laura, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited yeah. to join you. Yeah. I mean, like I was just saying right before I hit record, your story is so magnetic and heart-wrenching and, and it's full of ups and downs. Um, but before we get into all of that, would you mind giving us kind of a bird's eye view of the many lives of Mama Love and why you felt it was important to bring it to the page? Well, it's a memoir. Uh, and it's a memoir of lying, stealing, writing, and healing, which kind of covers covers it all in the book. Um, it's a story of me going from, you know, soccer mom. Actually, I was more basketball mom, but soccer mom um, in the suburbs to becoming addicted to opiates. Um, first pain medication that was prescribed and then um, heroin and then, um, you know, as happens with addiction, stealing and lying and stealing from my neighbors um, until I was arrested and incarcerated for a year. Um, and then when I got out, I had to rebuild my life from nothingness and fight to get my children back. And, you know, my the first line of my book is, is my first addiction was reading or reading was my first addiction is the first mm-hmm. line. And, you know, the gift post-incarceration of rebuilding my life as I really went back, got the opportunity to go back to what I love, which is books and writing. And I started working at a literary agency um, and working with amazing authors um, and keeping a secret so full of shame about my past and living in fear every day that the truth would come out. And it's a crazy story. Um, You know, as a literary agent, like I can recognize a crazy story. And so it's a crazy story. That's one reason I did the book. But also because I wasted a lot of time in shame and stigma, and I'm hoping others don't waste so much time in shame. And also, you know, it's it's a story about how you fail spectacularly, how you move past the worst thing you've ever done, and, you know, what we make an identity out of in our lives. Yeah. Before everything kind of started to fall apart at the beginning, what was your identity? Was it a mother was it um, just this high-functioning person who looked like, you know, they had the ideal life, you know, in a beautiful home? I mean, what what did you hold on to? I think my identity was definitely mother. And 
I was always working really hard to be what I thought the perfect mother was, right? And play that role. And um, and I wasn't. And I didn't know how to ask for help. And I didn't know how being the perfect mom, I could say I have a problem. And so I was very invested in being the mom I never had growing mm -hmm. up. Uh, and it's funny how you can do that and swear you're going to be like that and then make the, you know, different mistakes, but like frighteningly similar mistakes all the same. Yeah. So, you know, that was what I was invested in, just like playing the roles that I thought I needed to play in life. Yeah. And I think that's probably what resonates with so many readers, right? And so many listeners tuning into this is we're all kind of doing that, you know, unless you bring in that self-awareness and that presence, we're all just kind of doing what we think we should be doing because that's, you know, what our vision of what someone responsible with children should be doing. When what I really loved what you said in the book was that you were also addicted to escapism and you did that through reading before the drugs. When did you notice the drugs start to trickle in and take over more of a role in, in your ability to escape? So, you know, I was a late bloomer for addiction, <laughs> you know, I had, um, you know, because I was really invested growing up in being like the good, the good sibling in my family and school was always a big escape for me. I loved being at school. I loved, you know, the attention I got from good grades and doing well. And I loved reading and writing. Writing was just something I was, I was good at, I think from becoming such an early reader. Um, but it was after, uh, I had three boys fairly quickly after I got my MFA in writing. I was in uh, married to their dad, and and uh, there was a lot of infidelity, and I was really depressed and struggling with the fact that I had failed at creating this sort of perfect. You know, I thought I had failed at creating yeah. this perfect life that I, you know, growing up I thought everybody else had. You know, two parents and the kids and the mom bakes cookies, and. You know, one day, I think in that depression, I took a pain, you know, a pain pill that had been prescribed to me. And the way it reacted in my brain is it made me happy for no good reason, right? It made me like suddenly like not uh, miserable about my marriage, about us being poor, about the lawn, you know, having to do laundry and playing army guys and all of the like stresses and struggles of motherhood. I mean, it, it doesn't sound great, but the way it reacted, I felt oh, I can pretend easier that everything's okay, you know? And and it just went on from there, you know? And this was back when, you know, before the opiate crisis was truly a crisis in the early stages of it, um, you know, in the late 90s and mid-late 90s. And, you know, pain medication like Vicodin was just handed out in sample packs everywhere you went, right? It was, yeah. And doctors were like, oh, you're in a mood, have a you know, try this, you know, or your ear kind of hurts, try this. And so I think I just had a natural predisposition towards addiction. It ran in my family um, and that particular drug in my body also. So that was really the, the slow beginning and, yeah. and addiction progresses and it takes more to get that same sort of feeling of being okay. Yeah. Yeah. So fast forward, you know, it is progressing. You move on to heroin, as you write about in the book, and then you get a knock at the door. Can you talk about that moment? And that was kind of when the story really, to me, kicked off. Yeah. Um, you know, I had 
run out of money. I had been committing crimes, stealing from my neighbor's mail and stealing from my mom friends, their credit cards to survive and pretend everything was normal at home. And it all closed in one day. There's a knock on the door. It was the, the sheriff's department in Santa Cruz County. And they had come there to arrest me. My three older boys were at school. My youngest, Caden, who was four at the time, was home. And um, and they wouldn't let me call someone to get him. And, and he got taken away by Child Protective Services. And that was, I still get emotional. Yeah. All these years. I mean, I'm about to take them off to college tomorrow. So, uh, <laughs> so that might be why I'm more emotional too. But, yeah. um, <clears throat> but that was really when everything imploded and I couldn't lie to myself anymore. And the collateral damage of what I thought was sort of isolated self-destruction or just trying to control. And I kept saying, I'll fix everything tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I was arrested. I never went back to my home again, you know, and I ended up spending a year uh, incarcerated. The irony is, you know, I, I knew I had a problem. I knew I wanted help. And in my mind, I thought, I'm a mom. There's no way I had four of my own boys and two stepchildren. I was in my second marriage at the time. And I thought there's no way I could ever like go to treatment. I could never spend 30 days away from my children. Impossible. Right. And the irony is that I spent a year away from them and, and never really got back to a place where I would have them all in under one roof again. Yeah. Do you feel like that moment, as awful as it was, was also a great gift in your life because it did save you from from the path that you were on. I mean, it did just shake everything up in such an incredible way. And you you did then change after that. Yeah. I I I'm not sure if I would get say that specific moment, but that year of incarceration definitely changed my life and probably saved my life. I know the women in jail saved me many times. And um, and I, def- you know, it's so easy looking back to be like, yes, this happened and it had yeah. purpose in meeting. It was really difficult and it's difficult to start over at 40, right? <laughs> your whole entire life and be jobless, homeless, carless, friendless without your children um, and going through all of the obstacles of sort of rebuilding a life. But absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. Can you talk a little bit about the relationships that you built in jail with these women? A lot of them are mothers themselves. A lot of them are super, super young. I remember hearing you said one of your best friends was 17. And uh, can you talk about the people that you met and how they did save you? Sure. Well, 80% of of women in jail are mothers. um, And I think it's in jails and prisons that I think in prison, it's about 50%. Um, and yeah, my best friend, she was actually 19, two years older than my son who was 17. So okay. uh, she was my, you know, first and closest friend. And um, and I had, you know, I, I had all my mother energy with nowhere to, to put it. So um, the women in jail, you know, we were all from different backgrounds. You know, I was... Uh, there weren't a lot of PTA moms in there. There were some actually, but, um, but we were all going through the same thing. We were separated from loved ones, separated from our children. Um, they had a lot of wisdom for me. They had, uh, I had a lot of life experience for them and, and really, you know, detoxing from opiates in jail is not something I would wish on anybody. Mm -hmm. And, 
And the women there comforted me, took care of me, and um, gave me a community at a time when I had no other community. You know, when I felt like everyone else in the world had kind of turned away and I was, I was, um, you know, I was a cautionary tale at that point. Right. I want to hit home. Like, again, it wasn't something that happened to you overnight. Like this was like a long process to get to jail essentially. So it's not like this is something that's so far fetched and, Oh, you know, shame on her because it literally could happen to any of us. Right. Especially now when, when stress and anxiety and everything's going on and people are still prescribing really strong drugs. Um, but I think it's important too, that you were so open, you were so open in writing this and to write a memoir, you have to be so vulnerable and so honest. How did you move beyond those feelings of shame and guilt and feeling truly seen to bring this book to the world? Well, I, I knew if I were going to do it at all, I had to get really honest. And and being honest with myself was, again, something I was a late bloomer at. I was really good at pretending everything was fine, everything's okay, I, I have it all together you know, the house could be burning down behind me. I'd be like, no, it's just warm. I got it. You know, that was my (laughs) mode. Like I'll take care of everything. Mm. Um, and so I knew I had to be really honest or what's the point. And, and, you know, this is my first book is me, but it's my, was my 13th book I've written because I was a collaborative writer. So when you, when you can be tricky with words, it could have been really easy for me to do like sort of a surface level honesty, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but um, I know sort of the tricks of the trade in that way. And so I really, you know, to do the book, I went away for two months or seven weeks from my family, from work, uh, to the other side of the world. And cause I knew I was going to get really deep and there's things and raw and, you know, there's things in the book that weren't in the book proposal when it sold, like that whole time when I was out on bail, I had not told anyone. And that was really the darkest parts, you know, I've had random strangers come up to me and say, I was so furious at you, what you did, you know? And, and I was like, you know, same also, but, but I, I didn't want to, you know, pretty it up and, and, you know, my editor at Simon Schuster edited a lot out. So there was actually even a lot more and, you know, you're sort of constrained. I know sometimes I'm like, I should release the director's cut, right? (laughs) (laughs) The 36 chapters I had. Um, But I wanted to be really honest and vulnerable and, and, you know, it, it's, an, you know, I feel a little naked out in the world, but ultimately it was so freeing to do that and, and so healing. And so, uh, I felt so much lightness from it, you know, like I, like there's such a gift in not carrying those secrets and being like, yes, I'm messy and broken in ways and trying my best. And, and, um, you know, it definitely made me, I think a better mother too, a more real mm-hmm. mother, with my children, um, you know, I had to have them all read the book before it went into production because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure they were okay. And, you know, I don't know about you and I'm probably a different generation. I'm Gen X and I'm pretty sure that Gen X, we never had access to our parents' oh, uh, no. in- interior world. I mean, we barely had access to their exterior world, right? We were kind of on our own. Um, <laughs> and so so they read it. Um, and my oldest son, Dylan, he, um, who was a senior in high school when I was arrested, he, um, he said to me, you know, mom, I've, I've always felt close to you, but this makes me feel even closer to you. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really beautiful and scary thing to do, but I wanted to make sure they were okay with everything I was writing 
about them also. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing about memoir, right? Well, right. And, and, and memories in general, right? How we remember right. something could be completely different from how someone else. I mean, just look at any kind of witness testimony. Um, right. But were they happy with, with how they were written in the book? Uh, they, yeah, they were, I mean, they were, they were, they were very proud of me. Um, you know, all their friends think I'm cool now. So that's good. You know, that helped, but you know, I was really nervous to have Caden read it. And I, you know, he was, he's a senior in high school, just graduated. And so he read it and, you know, he was the youngest, he had the least memories. The book is really focusing on my fight to get him back. Cause he was the only one that was, um, kind of in jeopardy of me no longer being his mother, um, because of the, the court system and the CPS system. And he read it and, uh, I kept, you know, opening his door to check on him, you know, mm. and then he locked me out and he's like, we'll talk <laughs> about it tomorrow. Let me finish it. So he read the whole book, you know, like six hours, which is oh, wow. not something he normally does. Right. And he came in the next morning and he said, I didn't know any of that. Like he, he knew the circumstances, but, um, but he was proud of me. And he, he said, it's like I'm watching a movie. And mm-hmm. and then he said, there are some parts that were boring. And I said, what? Yeah. And he's like, he goes, the parts that I wasn't in, you know, <laughs> you know, as an 18 year old boy, but he's, right. he's super proud of me. And, you know, it opened up a lot of really great discussions that we didn't necessarily have. Oh. You know, I was, I was working so hard to rebuild my life and prove that I was good and prove that I was worthy and prove that I was valuable and prove I was more than this worst thing that I never stopped really to talk to anyone about what it was like. Well, you wanted to protect them, I'm sure. Yeah. Protect them. Yeah. How did you change when you did walk out of the jail after a year? I mean, what did you learn about yourself and your own inner strength that you didn't know before? I remember one particular hard day in jail and and I said to myself, I will never be afraid of anything again, like when I get out of here, right? Because I used to, you know, have to take pain medication to make a phone call or to have a conversation with you and look in your eyes and like, let's connect. Like, I just had a lot of fear around that. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's uh, my introverted side or I had it and then the drugs kind of took it away. So that that it made me more fearless in a way. Um, I was unprepared for how hard it was going to be when I got out. Like I thought, okay, I've, I've, I've done, I've paid my dues. I've done my time. I'll get out and I'll be able to start over. And I had no idea kind of like what that next phase was going to be like for me for seven years. And I had no idea how sticky the shame was going to be. So I did. So I was fearless in some ways and way more fearful in others. Actually, now that I'm talking about this out loud, I'm like, no, there was a lot of fear also. Yeah. And I understood now how people go back to jail, how those women that I was with that would get out, we'd have a big goodbye party. And then a week later, they'd be rearrested and come back. And I just like, I'm never coming back. And then going through the reentry process and all the bureaucracies and illogical things and having to be in three places at once, um, I realized how actually easy it is to go back to jail, not for committing a crime. You know, I don't even drive over the speed limit now. Like I'm so. (laughs) (laughs) But just that kind of like trap that kind of brings you back. Yeah. And the other way it changed me is I started writing again in jail and 
it brought me back to that because when I had children, I stopped doing the thing I love, the thing that helped me make meaning of the world and process my inner feelings and emotions. And I had stopped doing that. And I can't, uh, I know there's a lot of historical, you know, alcoholic famous authors or addicted famous authors, but for me, um, I can't, I can't, I could never write and do drugs at the same time. It's not, Mm -hmm. those things are separate. So it, it rekindled that, that love I had and that thing that, that, um, that heals me ultimately. What was the first thing that you wrote that you were like, I'm back, I'm back to myself. Um, when I was in G and this was not, you know, maybe the first month, um, when I got some, you know, a pen and some paper, um, I wrote like a sort of narrative poem about the women in there. Uh, and, and then I started writing like a why my son Ty was 13 at the time and he's a writer also. And, um, I started writing like a YA book, which is not my genre or, or anything. And I started writing this story about like teenagers with angel guides and I would send him the, send him this, the writing. I'd be like, okay, you can type this up and we'll, let's write this novel together. So we started Aww. doing that. I don't know whatever happened to it, but then I started ghost writing for wi- the women in jail, um, letters because most of them are mothers. I would write letters to the judge on their behalf as them. I would write as them. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, you know, talk me through their story and what they wanted. And I would write letters asking to for them as them to be put into long-term treatment rather than prison or to get a pass to go to a, a graduation or a birthday or a funeral or something with their children, you know, wow. sometimes get two hour passes. Um, and, and I was good at that. I was good at being them on the page. I wrote a pass for myself. I wrote as myself once to ask for a pass to go to my my oldest son's high school graduation. And I got denied. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm better at being other people. There was some kind of message there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that judge said to me later, he said, you know, I denied you because I wanted to make sure that you would never miss another one of your children's graduations, mm-hmm. which I haven't, you know, but but I missed the first one. Mm. did you feel like yeah I wouldn't like that comment from the judge but yeah do you feel like there was a larger mission in writing this book you said it's much easier to write for other people in this case you were writing for yourself do you feel like what got you through the hard times the hard stories all of it was a larger mission were you writing this actually for someone else I was writing it really for all the women that I was in jail with for all of the stories that are there. You know, I, I co-founded a nonprofit. Um, we, we've been working on the last year and we just launched it about two months, maybe six weeks before the book launched mm. um, to do programming for the women in jail and to do reentry services and to create this model because the, you know, the, the data shows that women respond to programming and there's been a 750% increase in women's incarceration and, and, um, and the reentry services are like disproportionately barriers for women who are often mm-hmm. the sole caregivers. And so I wanted to make it easier for people, um, because it was incredibly hard for me not to go back to jail, doing everything right with a master's degree, with some family support, with all the privilege that comes from being a middle-class white woman. And so it is almost impossible, um, to navigate, the reentry system and the probation and parole system, and it is a setup for failure. And so 
Um, we're working really hard to make that easier and we're hoping to bring the programming to all of the women's prisons in California and into the 3,116 jails across the country because jails and prisons were built for men, not for women. And the reasons women are incarcerated are often interpersonal. I would say probably 100% of every woman I met in jail had been some form of, of uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, child abuse in their history. And so you have a lot of traumatized women and you have a, a, a structure and a system that is run mostly by men controlling everything that's very re-traumatizing and triggering. And it's just not the best situation for rehabilitation. No, not at all. And I think even you just saying that, I didn't know that. And I know there's listeners all over the world who I guarantee didn't know that. You know, you think, oh, yeah. you do your time, you're released in society, it's your fault if you end up back there. But that's clearly not what's going on. No. And what is the nonprofit called? It's called the Gemma Project. Okay. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, yeah. Oh my gosh. We are almost to the end of time. Um, I have a couple more questions. What do you really want this book to do in the world besides raise awareness and, and share your very deep and personal story? What do you want the listener to walk away with or the reader to walk away with? There's so many things. But I think our idea of of who are the bad people versus the good people, who are the, you know, incarcerated people, you know, every, every incarcerated person, every incarcerated woman specifically has a story and a context. And I think um, it's hard for people to start over. And I think our, our bias, our judgment, our gossip, our, um, labeling makes it even harder for people. So I hope, I hope that it instills more compassion in people. Um, it's really hard to start over at, after any big upheaval in your life. And, and there's so many ways we can make it easier for people. I mean, this is, this is the area I'm focusing on now, but, um, I think we all just need to have a lot more compassion for people. Um, and, you know, people can have compassion for me or not, but I think the, the women that I met in jail, many of whom, um, have since passed away. I think many of, many of whom are in prison, some are out and doing well, but they're all struggling with that sort of shame and judgment of people. And, and it doesn't need to be like that. What would you say is the best cure for shame and guilt for someone who's been through something really devastating? A hundred percent it's community, right? The isolation makes it worse. Um, yeah, it's community, you know, it's in jail. I think you form a family wherever you are, whatever group of people, you know, you could be you know, shipwrecked with people and you, you know, form a, a community. And, and that's what helped us get through difficult times in jail was that we were a community and we supported each other. Um, and, and the thing that made it so hard for me post jail and for, for lots of women reentering is the isolation. And so, I mean, I'm not saying like, you know, 
necessarily invite everyone who's been to prison over for dinner, <laughs> but get to know, you know, like hear their story, get, understand the context of the decisions they made and why, you know, um, there, but for the, you know, we, we given the same set of circumstances mm-hmm. and context, we might make the same decisions as anybody that we're in judgment of. So I just think, get to know the stories, invite them into the community somehow. Well, I'm so glad that you have had the bravery and the wherewithal to share your story and and all the women in the book, their stories as well. Um, thank you for sharing your story here today. I, I'm so excited to to share it with my audience and to help us all feel a little lighter and live life with a little more compassion. So thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to share it out, subscribe, and leave us a review. Till next time.